Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. So there's a reason why I started Blood Origins. And that reason is simple. Is that I wanted to convey the truth about hunting. It brings awareness to to non-hunters that it's, it's more than just killing animals. How do I start it? Brittany. My name. My name. Is, <laughs> does my hair look okay? It's fantastic. My name is Mike Axelrod. Start again. Yeah, I hated it too. Braxton, <laughs> you said something in the car to me. You said that you were living on borrowed time. Hmm. There's a perception around who hunters are, what we're supposed to be, and a a feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter. Cal Hendrick is the owner of the Kickback Ranch west of San Angelo. It's a 2,500 acre high fenced operation that has about 32 species of exotics but is well known for its white tails and the quality of whitetails that it produces. So I want to have a straightforward conversation with him about the perceptions or misperceptions around high fence hunting. You may have an opinion about whether high fence hunting is good or bad, but I think when you dive into the details and the nuances around it, it may cause you to stop and think about your position as it relates to high fence hunting. Important to her. Sadie is a, this is an audio medium part, audio medium, so you have to talk. What happened, Cal? All of a sudden, you, you're not, you're the most talkative person in the world, and all of a sudden I ask you a question, you don't have an answer? Or not out in the pasture, that's where I live. This is, this is artificial. This is like being in the office. This is where my official voice comes in. Oh, really? You're going to shut down on me all of a sudden? No, I'm just going to charge you more. What are you doing? I'm turning you your volume down because you've got a loud voice. I know. Now, what kind of dog do you have in your lap? 
Sadie is a South African Jack Russell. She's an immigrant to this country. She came in from South Africa. I've hunted uh, South Africa, well, I've hunted Africa 20 times, or South Africa probably 10. And uh, most of the PHs use Jack Russells as their great dogs, tra- tracking, trailing blood dogs, and they're just yeah. they're they're very they're very loyal. They're very hardworking. They're ferocious for their size. They're their most uh, you know incredible dog. They can. I've seen them attack lions. I mean, these dogs are incredible. They're also great pets. I mean, they love sitting in your lap. They love just being loved on. Mm-hmm. But when it comes time to go to work. They go to work. They go to work, and they're just phenomenal at what they do. So we uh, brought her in to, to be a tracking dog out here. Um, happy to say we don't need her a lot. We got really good shots most of the time. But every once in a while, you get an animal just too far back or too high up. And, you, you, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I'm 58. I don't see as well. And, and, and it's just. Well, it's funny because the animals that you have out here, typically when someone sees them, they're not your stock standard white tail, shoot it behind the shoulder, double lung, the thing's going to expire in 30 yards. Scimitar horned oryx, the, the, the fabled scimitar horned oryx that's on your property, right? Um, that, if you decided to double lung that animal, you've probably got a two-hour tracking job on your hands. Well, to be uh, honest with you, last week we had a hunter who's been he's a white tail hunter, but he said he was in love with Gim's buck. Okay. Yeah, they're beautiful. Uh, Where did he shoot it? Where do you think he shot? He's a white tail hunter. Double behind, long. behind the shoulder. And I told him. I said, shoot it in through the, the shoulder. shoulder. Break it down. They're right. big bone. They're hardy, but they can't run without wheels. And you'll generally catch heart. And, you'll and, catch heart. And it's going to be a fatal shot. But more importantly, you don't have a tracking job. And, and of course, shoots it. And, and typical. I mean, I, we heard it hit. We saw it hit. We knew he was hit. Go up to the spot. And there's blood. And after 100 yards, you know, he didn't hit it where I told him to. So I'll go back to the car, and we have uh, – over here we have these uh, – I, I call them tracking devices. What they really are is they're just flagging tape on a, on sure. a washer. You put them down just so it's e- – get easy to find the blood trail. And so we went uh, – let's see, the first trail was 100. Then we went two. Then we went three and found it about 500 yards. Dead as a rock, but a couple things. Number one – Took two hours because uh, we didn't want to. I mean, not only are these animals tough, they're also dangerous. I know a guy in Texas got killed with a gimsbuck. Thought it was dead. Gimsbuck. Let's get it right. Came right here. Gimsbuck. Yeah. Came back and stabbed through and it hit the femoral artery. Dang. He bled out in yeah, a couple so, minutes. Yeah, I mean, yeah. and it's, so it's so. I, I, me and the hunter had guns. We were in the lead. I told you, you can't get – no one gets in front of me. We're not spreading out. We're, you stay behind me. Because I didn't want anything uh, to happen that would make it an unpleasant experience to a deadly, fatal experience. So we found it, and it was dead. And the blood trail was, frankly, not hard to follow, except it was tw- it was getting towards dark. And, again, I just don't see as well as I used to. And so mm-hmm. I needed younger eyes to help me. And, and uh, like I said, it, it, it was found. It was recovered. There was no big deal. Except you wasted an hour, hour and a half, two hours, and it made it difficult where it didn't have to be. Most of your, I don't think what people, I mean, why tell hunters to shoot in the double long area for a couple of reasons? One is they don't waste meat. That's right. Say, when all the, I get it. When you're, you want to, you know, capitalize on a meat of a deer that's going to be, you know, 100, 
pound buck, 150 pound buck. By the time you debone it and you know you take all the tendons off and and, and everything else, you know you don't end up with 50 pounds of meat. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they want to save the shoulders, and I get it. I mean, you make great, uh, you know, uh, hamburger meat. You make really some nice rumps if you want. I mean, some nice uh, shoulder cuts if you want. The problem is your African animals, and what people in Texas cannot appreciate, most hunters that don't hunt in Africa can't appreciate, is the, the toughness of the animal. And I try to explain it this way. Out here, we've removed most of your large predators. There's a couple right. of mountain lions that run around West Texas, but for the most part, there's no wolves, right. there's no bears, right. there's no mountain lions. So you have no, you have coyotes, but coyotes typically pick on the young, mm-hmm. uh, take off a lot of uh, of your fawns and your, your yearlings, but not much adult animals. In Africa, you have lions. You mm-hmm. have leopards, mm-hmm. you have cheetahs in places, and you have these cats that are incredibly powerful, strong, and for the most part, they take anything they want to take out. Um, and so these animals, for that reason, and maybe in others, they're usually bigger-bodied animals for the most part. You look at your gimsbuck, it's weighing 400-plus pounds out here. Uh, and whitetail deer, again, 100, 150 pounds. It doesn't take a lot to knock down a whitetail. For it, to, it just doesn't go far. Your African game is tough, hardy, right. big-boned. Right. And so there's so much more difficult to hunt, and the shot placement is everything. You don't want a double lung. You want it right through the front shoulders, taking part of the heart, but taking the front wheels out. Mm-hmm. And if not, it, it could be very, very difficult stock. A buck, a kudu, a wildebeest. These animals are tough animals. I mean, woof. Let me... um. Before we go any further, introduce yourself, please. Sure. Uh, my name is Cal Hendrick. Uh, uh, Where are we right now? We're the Kickback Ranch in San Angelo, Texas. I was born and bred in Odessa. In fact, my family's been in West Texas for over 120 years. We were uh, 140 years, really. Went to Odessa in 1880s. My great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather took a herd of cattle from Uvalde, and they pushed them up to Kansas, but settled down because of the good grass and mm-hmm. cheap land. Very rural at the time. Obviously, there was no not even a city yet there. Uh, but it was good cow country. So they were, they were cattlemen mm-hmm. and uh, still live there. But I love the Texas Hill Country. I don't know anybody that doesn't, quite frankly. Right. You know, you have the big oak trees. You have the, you have the uh, topography with rolling hills and just big old country. And I love West Texas, too. Don't get me wrong, man. That Fort Stockton, Fort Davis Country, Alpine, Marathon, that country's fabulous mm-hmm. but it but but for wild game you really just have some pronghorn you have mule deer you have some natural elk and all that now been introduced and are running wild and but whitetail deer is kind of was my passion and so when we started looking for a ranch to buy uh, i started looking really from about oh san angelo on is really the country i like i mean love menard love mason love fredericksburg all that country beautiful country uh, it's more expensive. It's further from home. And so San Angelo was kind of the, as far as I wanted to drive for a weekend ranch. I mean, right. I just didn't want to go any further. And uh, it so happens that uh, uh, Amy's father, uh, well, actually her grandfather, purchased some land in, in 1972. And it was for really uh, his children. He has two sons and a, and a daughter. This is uh, Theron Weatherby. And he was from Big Lake. And he just thought, and both his two kids were living in. Uh, two of his kids were living in uh, San Angelo, his daughter and son, son being Carmen. They had another son, Johnny, in Big Lake. But he had another place for Johnny. And he just thought all the kids, he was a rancher. He grew up ranching. He thought everyone needed a 
have access to the country. So what he did is he bought this ranch, and it became part of uh, a trust for, for Carmen's children. Carmen's her dad, Dr. Weatherby. He was a vascular surgeon. He ran the ranch for, uh, uh, you know, his lifetime. He was a trustee, and, and, and uh, he passed unexpectedly with a heart attack back in, I think, 2010. And, and so we bought it from the rest of the family in 11. Amy has two brothers and a sister. And it became our place. And, and you know, so we took, took possession of it in 2011. And that's the kind of the history of how we got into the ranch business. Um uh, Try so raising not, just cow- so ranch, it's a high fenced operation. Yeah, start off being we had a ranch, we had cows, and honestly, I and after a year of running cows, I don't know how anybody that's a cattleman doesn't go broke. Mm-hmm. The cost of the animals, the cost of feed, the cost of maintenance, and what you sell them for, you, you couldn't make enough to pay the taxes on the land. Mm-hmm. Now, hunting was worth, hunting is incredibly more valuable. That's but that's what I wanted to do. What do you think the value difference is between cattle and hunting? Again, again, and and I know there's a gradient, right? Just purely low fence whitetail to high fence whitetail to high fence what you have here, high fence exotic whitetail. What's it, tenfold? Maybe a hundredfold? Probably a hundredfold. Wow. Now, there's an incredible cost going into it. So you have a you better have a you know, better have access to a good banker or, you know, pretty flush with cash. It's expensive to get into, but because of the fencing, what else? Fencing roads the feed. If you're going to hunt it, you got to have good roads. First time it rains and you have four guys coming in, you can't leave the house. It's a problem. Right. I've hunted all over the world. I've hunted Alaska a bunch of times, and, and when it rains in Alaska, you and I, you're stuck in the tent. Well, if you're stuck in a tent as a hunter, I can tell you, you're not very happy when you spend your entire day in a tent. Uh, you paid a lot of money. You want to hunt. Now it's almost, but it's it's so difficult to walk. It's so difficult to get around in Africa. That, I mean, excuse me, in Alaska that. It's just tough, and anyway, when I'm saying about rain, it rains hard, so no animals are moving. So, but you, I mean, listen, you're on a budget, and you have so many days to hunt. Usually, say seven days in Alaska, and you lose two or three or four to rain or bad weather. Could be snow, could be fog. Right. As a hunter, you're disappointed. Yeah. Because that's your vacation, and that's your passion, and when you're just sitting in a tent, I mean, it's just it. It's frustrating, very frustrating for a guy that pay. And listen, hunting in Alaska is expensive, so when you're paying a bunch of money and you're not hunting, it's frustrating. So, we had roads originally were all dirt roads, and they're fine except when it rains. When it rains, they're impassable. So you literally either going to walk or you're stuck in the mm-hmm. house. And so, we spent a lot of money digging what we call cleachy pits. Cleachy is just a crushed rocks mm-hmm. like limestone, but we built a lot of rock roads. So when it does rain. And out here it rains heavy, then it kind of lets off. And so the roads are a lot of clay. You can't, they're, they're so slick, you can't drive them. So we built these rock roads, but you've got fencing. And I'm going to give you some rough figures, 35,000 a linear mile. 35,000, just so that everyone is listening to this knows what you're saying. Yeah, 35. Cost is about, there's a, it, it costs a rancher approximately $35,000 a linear mile. That's right. So if you had a one-section ranch, in Texas we talk sections mm-hmm. rather than acres, but 640 acres. 640 acres is a section. But it's a square mile. So 35 times 4. I mean, that, by the way, is that's for just flat land, no rock, no rock drills, nothing incredible. You don't have to build water gaps, just plain fencing. You know, it's 150, let's call it 150,000 because you'll be some other stuff added in. So if you have two sections, double it. You have three, I mean, you do the math. 
So it's it's an incredible investment. Number mm-hmm. one, just the fencing. Mm-hmm. Now here's the problem with high fencing. When you're low fence, animals go to pasture to pasture. So if you happen to have a doesn't rain on your place, it did a mile away. They may a lot of times migrate off feed. Right. They right. may come on your place for cover. They may not. I mean, but you'll get the rain next year or the next. So animals move freely back and forth. When you high fence it, now you set up some parameters that now you have to take care of the animals on your place because they can't wander off. So you have to now be able to supplement their feed. Uh, if you want to really make sure your animals are in physically good condition, that is, they've got plenty of body fat, you want them to grow good horns, you want the females to be able to go into uh, her uterus cycle and then carry twins, it's called about white-tailed now only, carry twins usually, and then have twins, lactate, feed them properly, you're looking at full year-round feeding, mm-hmm. okay? You are talking generally free-choice protein feeders. Uh, we also have corn feeders. And again, just to define so that people understand what you're saying, a free-choice protein feeder is one where the animal goes up and takes as it's needed versus the corn feeder, which is a timed distribution of feed. That's right. Corn feeders, typically corn is a carbohydrate. It's an energy source. In the wintertime, it's a very important animals to have that energy source, high energy, because they burn through a lot of fat because it's cold, because everything starts rutting. Uh, they need that the, the fat, the energy, the content. Protein, on the other hand, and it's not just protein. It, it, it's an, it's uh, generally based on corn or some grain product. And uh, protein, is, is it's usually we have what's called thousand pound feeders so a thousand pounds each and they have four tubes and the animals feed off those tubes as much or as little as they want and some animals feed a lot some don't it gives them the ability though to get and and to get uh proper minerals proper vitamins proper protein content so their bodies Mm -hmm. their bodies which is critical are in good shape Mm -hmm. for the things that mother nature throws at them where it could be heat could be cold could be wet you know these animals have to be in good physical shape to survive the the rigors of, of the season and in places that are low fence I mean, mother nature made some tough animals but they won't they'll survive but they may not thrive there's a difference right. a huge difference when you weigh one of my deer I, I for let's see from probably 88 so for 20 plus years we were low fence. I weighed. Every, we were in MLD for the last 10 or 15 years. So every animal we scored, we weighed, we checked the general body content. When you clean them, obviously you're looking at fat content. Our bucks were weighing about 100 pounds. Females were weighing about 60 pounds. Wow. Uh, that's low fence deer. And now my bucks weigh about 250 for rut. Now after rut they lose. They can lose 30 to 40 percent of their body. Cool. Uh, dose now weigh about 150 pounds. So we've literally doubled the, the physical size of our animals, and that's really uh, based on their fat content. Based mm-hmm. fact, they get better muscle content, mm-hmm. they get better fat content. Mm-hmm. So I tend to have lots of babies because mm-hmm. everything's in good physical condition. No, you got you, you, you're obviously you, you're you're suggesting that you have a, a healthier deer population with your high fence versus you had with the low fence. Listen, it's like this. And not maybe a perfect example, but let's just say you have an athlete that's really good athlete, like, and you have an athlete that's incredible Olympic. If that Olympic athlete doesn't train properly, doesn't have the right nutrition, he's never going to meet, he's never going to reach the perfect level. And you can take another average athlete that trains properly, that eats properly, that has proper 
everything need, needed, and they're going to they'll excel. Mm-hmm. And so they'll maybe be competing one-on-one. The other one's much better genetically, but didn't have the raw tools he needed, didn't have the food, didn't have the, the, the things he needed. It's the same way out here. So I took deer and doubled their size, more than doubled it. What does that mean? It means they're healthier, stronger, faster. Body-wise, they're going to they're going to breed better. They're going to females are going to do better and have twins every year, which is important if you're trying to. Uh, I mean, to me, deer are a cash crop now. Right. They're a beautiful animal. I love them, but but they're a source of income. They have to be because of the very nature of what we do is a very expensive process. So those animals, I want them to do well. But again, part of it is I just want them to do well. Part of me as a conservationist, I look out there and I can look when I I see. My neighbors around me, there's nothing wrong with them, but I see little scrawny, mm-hmm. tiny deer. And mm-hmm. I look at mine, and, and my bucks are literally twice body size. My does are so much bigger, taller. And there's nothing wrong with the other side. It's just that me as a conservationist, I want to see things. I want to see my animals excel. Mm-hmm. Okay, It's like having children. You want you have nothing more than your children to exceed you. You want them to be bigger, right. stronger, smarter. Right. Same way with my animals. I want them to be better. And uh, there's a cost involved. There's lots of TLC involved, tender loving care. There's lots of intentional work that has to be done. But for me, it's worth it. It's for, you know, We took a drive this morning, and you saw what I consider good deer, 170 right. to 190 class bucks. They're not even my good ones. They're good. Don't get me wrong. They're good. But I've got <laughs> 250, 300 class deer, too. And so... The biggest deer we shot in 35 years of low fence was about a 160. Mm-hmm. In that, this area. In, in this ranch. Yeah, yeah. This exact ranch. We killed a couple of 150s, maybe 10 140s, but 99% of our deer were between 120 and 140 score. They were right. eight. If they were 10s, they generally had their G4s were about, you know, maybe an inch, maybe even two inches. But, but that is... They, they, they didn't get old enough because, unfortunately, they were harvested by neighbors. Mm-hmm. And we can go into that. But it basically, you know, people are leasing deer in Texas, and, and they want to harvest deer. And it's hard to argue with that. They paid their money. The deer came to their feeder or yep. came across their yep. gun. I'm not mad at them. But I, I, and people are going to take the deer that comes on, even if there's, you know, this written or not, not typically handshake agreement, like, hey, let's let deer grow. Let's get them to four and a half, five and a half. But when you've got 20 people in a in a unit and you've got neighbors, the tragedy of, tragedy of the commons is going to always occur, which is if I let this deer walk, someone else is going to shoot it. That's exactly what happens. They think, well, if I don't shoot it, my guy, I'm going to stand next to him, he's going to shoot it. Or he has his son or daughter hunting. And, and the last thing I want to do is ever get mad about someone for letting a kid shoot a deer, particularly if it's their first buck or they don't have a lot of experience. You want them to have a good experience. 100%. I don't get mad about it, but it, but I can get frustrated as a landowner because we all had an agreement to let these deer, let's don't shoot any deer before, say, four and a half, five and a half. Let's let them get mature and then shoot them. Mm-hmm. And the, quite frankly, the problem is that doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so what a high fence gives you the ability to do is control and manage your herd. So someone is listening to this and is saying, I hear you say exactly that, the ability to maintain and control your herd. But at the same time, you're just making it easier to kill them. As you just, as you said earlier in this podcast, this is a cash crop. 
So why do you? Why would you make it harder? You just want to make it as easy as possible, and people come in and kill. Again, you have to go back to hunting ethics, fair, fair chase, and a conservationist attitude, and all that equals. Is it fair chase to to hunt deer on this property? Absolutely. I, listen, anyone that bad mouths high fencing has never been to this property, or probably any other for that matter. Now, might there be a ranch in Texas that has a very small, like 200 acres, and, you, you know, they have a book you look at and say you want that deer, sure, and they go out and shoot it. Now, that, to me, it's not fair chase. I'm not bad-mouthing anyone for their for their program. Maybe that's all they – maybe I, I'm not going to speak on it. I, I'm not going to criticize a fellow hunter, a fellow ranch owner. I hate it when you get on Facebook and some, for example, some bow hunter kills a – Deer and some Ralph Hunter bad mouths or vice versa. So right. I see it every day on Facebook, and I'm so disappointed when hunters attack other hunters for the way they do it. You know, if you want to use a rifle, I support you 100%. You want to use a bow, support you 100%. I support everybody hunting. Hunting is a great thing. It's a great. And you support the pick and pay as well, 100%. I do. I do. But that's just not the way you would like to hunt. That's not the way. You're going to hunt on my place. That's and right. I don't okay, think, okay. I don't think that's how 99% of landowners in Texas are. When you talk about high fence, most of the time, all that high fence does is gives me the ability to grow a big deer. It gives me the ability only. The deer still has to do it himself. I, I, I feed it. I let it get old. We don't take a buck out here less than six and a half year old unless it's a management mm-hmm. type buck. So you're shooting six, seven, and eight year old deer. You don't even see a six year old deer on a low fence property generally because they don't get that old. So number one, Number one, let's face it, I'll be honest with you, I'm not making any money. Anyone says they're making money, it's really not true. You're trying to make enough money to pay your expenses. You're trying to pay. Pay for itself. That's all you're asking for. You're not making, I'm not going to get rich off this property. Maybe when you sell it, maybe there's a a cash Mm -hmm. availability. But right now, we don't make enough to feed the animals. uh, So hunting is a... I want people to have a good experience. I want people to see lots of animals. We don't shoot lots of animals. That's the difference. We let them mature. So every year, you're only going to have a certain amount of bucks that are going to be the right age group to shoot. Right. And you're not going to drive out there, oh, there's a buck, boom, shoot it. Now, you will see a lot of bucks out here, no doubt. Why? I'm not harvesting every buck. You can see lots. In fact, it's the most frustrating thing for most hunters that come out here is they want to shoot the first buck. And now we're not shooting that buck. Mm-hmm. It's three years old. Yeah, but it's 12 points and it's 25 inch wide. Right. It's not mature enough. We're not shooting that buck. Yeah. Right? Just put your put your gun down. You calm down. Mm-hmm. We're gonna see more. And then, and then they're always at the end of the hunt. They always tell me, man, I'm so glad you didn't let me shoot that buck. I had mm-hmm. so much more fun mm-hmm. selecting the proper buck. Proper buck being based on age, uh, score in part because it's it's. It, Sure, the fee sure. is based on, on, to some degree, on the size of the deer, but that's not what we're mainly looking for. We're mainly looking for old, mature, and those old, mature bucks look so much different. They've got sway back, big pot bellies, massive necks. They don't even have a neck. You usually see just yeah. from chest to head. Yeah. There's no, no, there's no, no, no separation neck. between the brisket and the and neck. To a man, everyone says, damn, that's the best deer I ever shot. Mm-hmm. The score is impo- unimportant. Mm-hmm. It, it's the the body size is so incredible. And I had some hunters from uh, Georgia who who, who that keep asking me, where'd you get those deer? Where'd you get those deer? Clearly, they've been on places where people put and take. Right. Again, that's not for me. I'm not bad about anyone that does it, but that's just not my style. My style is I brought deer on here. 
bred doe, yearling bucks, and they live all their life on here. And that was on the on the wet on the east side, 2012. So if you see a tag deer now, it's 14, 12 to 14 years old. Right. On the west side, it's four years behind. So you'll still see some tag bucks. They're seven and a half. Mm-hmm. Lived all their life. Well, they lived, I mean, sure. lived six years out here. Sure. You see bred doe because they came in as yearlings or two-year-olds. And so they're right now anywhere from five to to seven. Um, but most of the deer aren't tagged. And, 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 and I'm uh, I'm not opposed to anything. I'm not bad-mouthing anybody. But for me, it's important for these deer to be wild if they're born in the pen, they're going to live their entire life out here, learn how to feed and fend for themselves, fight off coyotes, survive the snow and cold, survive the 110-degree heat in the summertime, survive EHD, you know, survive everything nature throws at them, mm-hmm. and then we'll take them. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, people I, I, people come and say, hey, send me some deer. I want to see what you got. So every year I drive around taking pictures. So I say to them, I want that buck. And I tell them, <laughs> I just laugh at them. I mean, it is unlikely we'll ever see that buck again. Yeah. I mean, it's just, yeah, you might sit in a stand and might come in, but I can't, you can't look at pictures and tell me what, I can show you what are you looking for. Are you looking for a big typical? Do you like wide deer? Do you like mass deer? Do mm-hmm. you like mm-hmm. lots of times? Do you want non typical versus typical? I, I'm using those pictures just to explore the style of deer they're looking for. So we can focus on that type of deer. I, for example, if they don't want a non-typical, we're not going to spend a bunch of time looking at non-typical. That's not right, what they want. Right, right. You want a big old 12 wide deer. Okay, now I get, that's what we'll hunt for. That buck, mm-hmm. good luck. You'll never see that buck again maybe this season because there's a lot of deer during the rut I see, and I don't see them again until you can see a pile of deer over here to my right. I don't know how many deer that is, to be honest with you, but it looks like 300-plus bucks. Mm-hmm. They're sheds, by the way. Sheds, For yes. those listening, it's yeah. like we don't have a pile of 300 deer. Yeah, that's the bucks that in 2020 shed their horns. I used four-wheelers, and with my children, friends, we grid the pastures. I'm really interested in finding them so I know what is still out there, what is left, because obviously the bucks drop their horns. Right, right, right. So we know what size a deer we have. We know what they're – generally by the mat. You can tell if they were healthy or if they were throwing drop time. And so, oh, look at this one. And we tend to mark up where we find them originally, so I kind of – I just want to know where things are living and when they're dropping so we know where to hunt from the next year. And what I do is I put some of the good ones on the board. I have hundreds, of, well, I have probably thousands and thousands of white-tailed deer up in the barn. Uh, why? I, I just, everybody would say, well, you got to sell those. And I'm like, I, I just, I mm-hmm. feel like I'm, they're part of me. They're part of this ranch, <laughs> and I just, I can't let go of them. Uh, but it's also important to know what are you finding what survived and then it's it's just shocking the number of sheds we see and i'm like a double drop time 12 i never saw that buck ever mm-hmm. entire season never saw it never to stand never driving around and so if you're doing it my way not the right way i'm not saying this is the right this is just for me this is how i want to do it it's cow's way let's call it and my wife bought in my children we all have the same management program we're going to take off old age-class deer that have lived their entire life, and they're on their way down. Mm-hmm. And they've done everything they can for the herd. Now they're no part of the breeding herd. And that's the same way with my exotics. We're not taking breeding bulls. We're taking excess bulls that have been pushed off from the herd. And you know it, obviously. You're from South Africa. But a lot of people don't know that most of your antelope species are herd animals. 
And most of the time you have a dominant bull that has a, you can call it a harem, you can yep, call it a yep. herd, whatever you want to call it. And he breeds all those doe, and that's his right. I mean, he he's earned it. He's fought for that right to be the breeder bull. And that's the one you don't shoot because he's breeding. He generally is the biggest, strongest, baddest dude out there. But there's lots of males he's kicked off. There's older male that he pushed out of the herd. That's what we're after. We're not we're not get, shooting females. We're not shooting the herd bull. We are shooting excess males. That I mean, they've done their job. They bred. They put their genes in the herd, and now they're living off. By, it's so easy to find. They're always by themselves, and they're mm-hmm. they're generally big. They're old. Sometimes they're not as good as that bull. Why? They've worn down their tips. They just sure, worn sure. down. But man, are they a great trophy. Mm-hmm. And that's from a hunter perspective. That's what we want to take. We mm-hmm. want to take those animals. Again, this is the conservationist in me speaking. Some people are against shooting animals. Well, I just got to tell them. I mean, this is. What would you say to the person, just to divert you slightly, what would you say to the person who says, I'm against shooting animals behind a high fence? I would say that I would ask you to come out here and reexamine your views after a weekend with me. Most people have said that I have not been on a high fence place, or they were on one of these that, again, it's not cow's way. I'm not saying it's wrong, but it, there's some places that are probably not fair chase as the average hunter would want. Again, this is one of those issues on Facebook you see a lot where someone shoots a deer and they start bad-mouthing because it's a high fence. Dude, come out here and hunt with me. You, you're going to hunt your you-know-what off. It's not as easy as you think it is. Now, are there a lot of animals? Yes, they're off limits. We're not shooting a two-year-old bull. We're not shooting a three-year-old deer. We're not shooting. You're going to shoot an old, and to hunt that animal? It is a hunt. They hunt game on. When we leave that front gate and, you know, the the cattle guard in front of the house, we're hunting. Right. But hunting and shooting are two – that's what people don't understand. They think it's – it's uh, they think you go out there and you shoot a bunch of stuff and you lay it down, it's easy. It is very difficult, very hard. Um, I don't think they appreciate – yes, you'll see a lot of deer. We're not shooting those deer. Those are off limits. Just because you see a deer, we're not shooting it. You know, we have 500 deer – the 600 deer every year out here, and we shoot 50. Mm-hmm. I mean, and the oldest 50 bucks we find, you know. We shoot females. We're required to under what's called MLD permits, managed land permits. We shoot them. And, but everything we shoot, that's what's critical. Everything we shoot is eaten. I mean, it goes to – we can't eat all that many animals. We right. give it to churches, Hunters for the Hungry program. South Africans that come out of Mississippi. <laughs> that's exactly right. We fill our <laughs> freezers up. Why? <laughs> I mean, there's nothing better than deer meat that's free range. 100. I mean, it's healthy. You know, it's 100 percent healthy. There's no chemicals added, no antibiotics, no nothing. It's good meat. It's good for you. It's good for your family. It's very lean, high in protein. There's probably nothing more healthier than venison. I mean, it's great antelope. Nothing. I mean, antelope tastes a little better. Why? They're grazers. You know, they're grazers. That means they're eating a lot of grass. They're not eating forbs and weeds like deer do. So they're excellent game fare. So we generally shoot one a year for the family. We shoot one excess female, for the, and we process the meat, and we take care of it. It's a kind of a family affair, and that's great. But, yeah, these people that – getting back to the high fence situation, I'm disappointed that fellow hunters won't recognize that there is a um, – it's fair chase. It's more difficult sometimes than hunting low fence. Uh, much more selective. It's much more about the quality of the experience, and you'll see lots of animals. You will, but you're not going to shoot 
two-year-old deer just because they're big. I don't care how big it is. You're not shooting a two-year-old deer on my place. You, I don't care if that's the deer you want, double trop tine, 12 point. You're not going to shoot it. I'm not going to let you. We're hunting for very specific animals, which makes it sometimes much more difficult than hunting low fence. And you know, the quality of the experience is higher because you'll see so many animals. But just because you see them does not mean we're shooting them. Uh, but they say, well, you know, it's unfair because they can't escape. Really? You flew this morning in a helicopter, a bird of prey, and you didn't see scimitar orcs. They have 50 of them. You don't have scimitar Yeah, that's what you We're going to see them this afternoon. <laughs> I have 50 of them. That ought to tell you something. Just because we have it does not mean you can find it and shoot it. Uh, we've well had, said. We've had hundreds. Just because you have it, let's make that point. Just because you have it doesn't mean you're going to find it and you're going to shoot it. That's exactly right. We could go sable hunting today. I mean, I've gone two months and not seen my sable. I have ten of them. I mean, you know, and they're big animals, and they they stick out pretty We didn't prominently. see your sable either. Uh, you I don't think you have sable. Yeah, we're, that's my point. You did see a bear singer, but I have 30 or 40 bear singer. Where are they? I mean, just because I have it does not mean it's just a, uh, you know, I guess people have that idea that you just drive out there and it's a big open field and you shoot it. That's what I think people envision. You don't understand, it's heavy brush out there. you got cedar, mesquite, white brush, algerita, prickly pear, cactus. It's, it's not going to the zoo. I think that must be the people have in their mind when they talk about high fence. It's a zoo. You go out there and just whack it. And between you and I, I know there's some guys that carry a heavy volume of animals, and it must seem like that. Um, but it really, it's not. I mean, 90% of the places that are high fence, it is fair chase all the way. But what it's fair chase with animals of higher quality because I'm putting the time, money, and effort out there to grow proper deer. And by that, I mean, that's the term I hear in South Africa all the time. We talk about a proper hunt or proper clothing. It means things that are earned, done right, Matured appropriately. That's exactly right. It's it, it, it and it, you can't appreciate it till you've done it. So I I would dream one day of opening my ranch up to some people that are oh anti hunting. Let's just come out here and look for something. We're not going to shoot it. Let's just this. I mean, hunting's more than just taking out their gun. There's hunting with the camera. There's hunting with your binoculars. There's just seeing it and experiencing it. Let's mm-hmm. see this experience and see if there's something that you think you could enjoy. Mm-hmm. And I would bet if you, again the people. I found across the world, particularly in America right now, are so polarized by politics, by you, – you talk about the vaccine, the COVID vaccine. You talk about the Kyle uh, uh, Rittenhouse. I, they're just so polarized. I wish people could be more statesmanlike, relax, take away all those prejudices that we all have. Again, this in this case, prejudice about high fences – and experience it for yourself and see if you appreciate it or don't. And if you don't, that's okay. You don't have to do it again. But why don't you experience it before you criticize it? Why mm-hmm. don't you come try it? Why don't you see what it's all about and not just criticize it? Because I think some people across America, listen, Texas 97% privately held, which means you have to have permission to get on somebody's land. Most of the West, most of that land's government land, state-owned land, uh, for an out-of-state hunter like me, I've been trying to draw tags for animals for 30 years. I still haven't drawn tags. And so mm-hmm. I don't appreciate that at all. I mean, I, it doesn't seem fair that, that non – I mean, it's, remember, it's federal land. It's owned by all of us, included. Sure. And yet they can they can uh, 
they're prejudiced. They they don't let out-of-state hunters have more than 10% of the tags in most states. But they'd say the same of you. Uh, they'd say that you're prejudiced because you own this land. Uh, they can come hunt here. Come on out. I mean, at least you can hunt here. I can't hunt there. I am restricted from hunting there. They're able to hunt here. Does it cost them money? Sure. It costs them money to hunt there, too. I mean, you know, it's, it's, and it, they have access to it. I don't have access to it. So what do you want me to do? Mm-hmm. I either have to lease or have to buy. Right. You have, when I say you, someone in New Mexico or Colorado, well, they have perhaps greater access to land as a resident hunter that I don't have. I can't, I can't get access to it. So what's my alternative? I can come lease land or I can come buy land. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm a control freak. Anyone can ask you, they'll tell you I'm a control freak. So leasing to me is not, doesn't fit my psyche because I think, I'm not going to lie to you, I think my way is the right way. I'm not saying it is. I'm saying that's what I think. So to me, letting animals grow old, letting them survive, feeding them proper nutrition, watching the habitat. You know, sometimes you have to sell excess animals. We can't let animals um just procreate and grow and grow because eventually they're going to tear up your habitat. You'll have no grass. Right. Yeah, it's in West Texas, a lot of sheep and goat ranchers. You can drive low fence, I mean, highways around Texas. See where you can tell when someone has too many animal units. Oh, for sure. You see rocks. Rocks and a browse line. And a tree and browse line up to there, and there's no grass. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not criticizing. They're just trying to make a living. But from a biology, biology standpoint, from a habitat standpoint, got too many animal units mm-hmm. and that would happen here if you don't high fence cause you to manage way way more intensively than you do on low fence you sure. have to be intentional you have to be every day looking at your browse line your grass line your pasture what are you seeing and if you see like i had sold probably two years ago because of a drought conditions i probably sold 75 red sheep and 75 mouflon. Why? I had to get my numbers of sheep. Sheep compete with goats, and, and they're, they're, they graze pretty heavily. So I had to drop the numbers tremendously. And now it's rained a bunch more. The grass has come up more. But now I, and I have breeding population, but they have to come back up now to those sure, of course. To numbers. And then, and then honestly, you always got to be, I mean, if it's white-tailed deer, you have to harvest it because the state owns the white-tailed deer. For exotics, you, as a manager, you have to control your herd. You can't let it get out of whack. If you do, you're going to ruin your habitat. And that's just bad business. Right. Um, you can't do that. Right. So, it, it, you know, getting back to our original topic, you know, the high fence, is that unethical? No. If you do it right. And doing it right to me means – Animals have to have a place to hide. They have to have heavy brush. They have to have escape. They have to be, you, you, if you cannot guarantee someone a certain animal, a certain buck. or mm-hmm. Now, if you tell me you want a scimitar, if you give me three or four days, we'll get a scimitar. There's no doubt about it. You'd say, give me an axis, give me a month. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're here. There's lots of them. They're difficult animals to hunt. They're very, and some like Pierre David, you know, they're extinct in China. To me, they're very important for ranchers like myself to bring back the population numbers and hopefully someday reintroduce those in China and let them have, you know, the deer that's native to that country survive and thrive. Right. Uh, but right now, do what you can. We have Bersinga. We have Pierre David. We have Addicts. We have Scimitar. All these animals are, are extinct in their native country, and yet I have thriving populations. Why? Mm-hmm. Intentional management. Um 
it's taking care of them. It's 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 some some part of you has to want to help the animal. You have to. You have you wouldn't do it if you did, weren't doing it for the animals. Mm-hmm. Uh, do I make some money? I mean, yes, I make some money, but not enough to pay the feed bill. I mean, you still it's not a you're not going to get rich in the in, in a high fence. Mm-hmm. You're not going to do it. No mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's about having quality hunts, quality animals, being very intentional about your habitat practices, being intentional about your harvest practices. Recognize harvest is an essential element of proper habitat management. Uh, but we're not just willy nilly going out there with guns and shooting everything. You drove around today. You saw our animals are very calm. Uh, we have lots of variety of habitat. We have lots of variety of animals. Everything is, it's interesting that everything has their own, they like a certain part of the ranch versus another animal that's in, in another part of the ranch. They just pick their habitats that's best for them, and they survive. Mm-hmm. There's plenty to eat. There's plenty to hide. You come a giant ice snowstorm like we had in 2021 in February. We call it the Storm Uri, but I call it Snowmageddon. My animals thrived. I mean, they didn't die. Uh, I lost a male guy, and that's the only animal I lost. And I don't know if they didn't know how to get in the brush proper, or I, I, I can't explain it. Right. I know other ranchers lost hundreds and hundreds of black buck and axes. I didn't lose one of any. I know because I flew it, and I drove around after it on four-wheelers. Again, we grid the country pretty well, and we looked and looked, and all we found uh, was a young dead gimps buck that he was already eaten by coyotes, so I wasn't sure if it was before or after. I just know he's dead. I mean, unfortunately, I found nine nil guy that mm-hmm. froze to death, and, and I, I, I don't understand it, quite frankly. Uh, three or four, I mean, we had, uh, let's see, five survive, lost nine, and uh, I don't know why. It's just, sure, I, sure. again, I, I'm coming from a non-wildlife manager background. I'm a lawyer by trade. Uh, I have a wildlife that works for me. He's really a whitetail specialist. I, I learn from people all around me. Uh, you know, um, you, Kyle Lang here flew the helicopter. Kyle's been an excellent source of information. Uh, there's lots of people, Dale and Terry Caffey down in Eden, that are wonderful sources of information. I've got friends, Judy May and Jeff Simonick at the Texas Divide. All these people have helped explain to me certain habitats, certain practices. For example, we feed our whitetail protein about 19%, and I feed alfalfa, and, and I have a kudu. They're in a pen because I'm trying to grow the numbers big enough to release them. And some of them have grown what we call sand hooves. And they were saying, hey, I think you're feeding, you're too hot. Your protein needs to be cut down to about 12 to 14%. Right. Because I feed the alfalfa. There's nothing I can do about the protein content in it. It's a natural alfalfa. But I want to be able to supplement their diet with what's in the pen. And, it, and there's plenty to eat in the pen, but I just want them to thrive. And so I... So now we're going to have to cut back on our, you know, on the uh, percentage of protein. We're going to have to dart and then and trim their hooves. Trim the wolf, yeah. yeah, just like you with a horse or any animal. Yeah, Sometimes yeah. they go, they their hooves get out of whack. And so this is learning. I mean, I'm just learning. Now, if they're in the bigger pasture, they'd be probably fine to eating more Natural native habitat. Correct. Yeah, yeah. But i got to get the numbers up before I release them. I want there to be a stable herd before they're released out. Mm-hmm. And so that's how I start a lot of my animals I've started the newbie and Ibex are in a hurry. Once they get to a certain number, you just open the gate and let them move go. the feet outside, let them go, and they'll they'll right. wander out. Once they're out, they're out. Yeah, you know. Well, I appreciate your thoughts on uh, on the high fence, and thank you for having us here. Thank you for your hospitality, and uh, yeah, I look forward to doing it one day. Yeah, fantastic. It's it, you're come anytime. You want to look at animals? It's uh, 
to me, some of the joy of having this has been to just take people riding around and looking at all the different species. Absolutely. Looking at, explaining to them about, you know, again, the average person is not a member of SCIs, not a member of Dallas Fire Club, not a in the hunting industry. They are all excited to see animals and learn about where they're from, and they're shocked to find out that you know they're extinct in a lot of countries. Mm-hmm. They're doing poorly, mm-hmm. you know. All that I got another. I got all that. They're extinct, and they're they're not. Being, no, they're not extinct. They're not extinct, but they're not huntable there in Chad. They, Chad. Actually, there is now a huntable population in Morocco. Morocco in the national park. They're actually wow. native. It's going to be quasi public land. And I think there's like four tags this year available. I bet there's more in Texas than there oh, is in Morocco. No doubt. I mean, there's, no doubt. they're they're running wild in Palo Duro Canyon, wild down in the mountains of, and there's a lot of private ranches because they're fun. Everybody likes them. Mm-hmm. Cool animals. So, yep. but anyway, my point being, there's just so many animals that that people see. They're just so excited about seeing gimsbuck and sable and, and but big white-tailed deer. Most people don't see really big white-tailed deer, and it's exciting to see yeah. a big. Well, our minds were blown this morning. So. <laughs> well, we're going to see some more tonight. Yes, sir. Thank you, Kyle. You're welcome. Well, that's it for today. I appreciate you listening, as always. Leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly, do what's right to convey the truth around hunting.